Somebody else. Are we unique, or do other, <clears throat> other Western European countries and corporations in other ways or somehow gain these, these kinds of rights, or are we truly... We're pretty unique. I mean, corporate rights are much more <clears throat> embedded in our state and federal law than really any other country in the world, maybe with the exception of South Africa, amazingly enough, because when the uh, African National Congress overthrew apartheid and wrote a new constitution, they were under so much pressure from the World Bank and the IMF and the other global elite institutions that they were basically told, you have to put corporate rights right in your constitution for us to not push back. What do our corporations do then in these other countries because they, they don't, do they behave totally different? They behave in a much, yes, in a much less gutsy, disgusting way. Absolutely, they have to. They don't have those same kinds of protections. Mm. Yeah. Uh, a little while ago, you used the phrase, uh, we're so colonized. Yes. And could you say a little bit more about what you mean? Yeah, and I'll, and I'll say more about it in the second half also. I mean, if you think about it, a, a colonized people is a people who don't know their history, don't know who they are, right? If you don't know your history, you don't know who, what kinds of relationships are appropriate, Right, economic, political, legal, social relationships don't understand that we are we the people, that we have self-governing authority. I'll read you, uh, I usually do this in the second half, but just to give you an example, here's the opening paragraph in the Washington State Constitution. Article 1, Declaration of Rights. This is, this is the highest law of the land in this state. Article 1, Declaration of Rights. Section 1, Political Power. This is the first paragraph of your state constitution. All political power is inherent in the people, and governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed and are established to protect and maintain these rights. That's binding law. That's the highest binding law in this state. Here's Oregon's first paragraph of its state constitution. Article 1, Bill of Rights, Section 1, Natural Rights Inherent in People. We declare that all power is inherent in the people. All free governments are founded on their authority. Right? That's this. And instituted for their peace, safety, and happiness. And they have at all times a right to alter, reform, or abolish the government in such manner as they may think proper. That's binding law in Oregon State. Right? Again, that's this relationship. State, state laws are very clear. Here's Montana's first few paragraphs. I mean, this one boggles my mind every time I read it. Here's the first two sections. Declaration of Rights, Section 1, Popular Sovereignty. All political power is vested in and derived from the people. All government of right originates with the people, is founded upon their will only, and is instituted solely for the good of the whole. All government, that's its primary duty. Section 2, Self-Government. The people have the exclusive right of governing themselves as a free, sovereign, and independent state. They may alter or abolish the constitution and form of government whenever they deem it necessary. Well, increasingly, all the constitutions, yes, define people as being both human and corporate. Yeah. What's that? That's become law, but that's not constitutionally accurate. This is constitutionally accurate. And the Constitution is the highest law of the land. 
was some legal um, precedence for common good, to protect the common good, or things were done for the common good, whatever happened to happen. As defined by 5 or 10% of the public, right? Yeah. I mean, and to, be, to be really blunt and honest here, we've always had minority rule in the United States. Right? We've always had 5 or 10% of the people ultimately having governing authority. Right? We started with white propertyed men being the only people who had political power, legal power, to vote, to own property, to sue, to lobby, I'm not to lobby, to, um, to testify in court, etc. Only persons could do that, people recognized as persons. Late 1800s, we're seeing the end of what I just described, right? the end of corporations as subordinates. And at the same time, we're seeing more and more people being enfranchised through massive social movements, right? Women are mobilizing. People are mobilizing to get slaves, to turn slaves into human beings under law. So a larger and larger percentage of human beings are becoming persons under law with rights. That starts threatening the, 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 the minority or the elite control of the society. What, do, what, do that, what does that elite do? It, it, ha, it understands that the corporate form, which it hadn't really needed up until the mid to late 1800s, because why do you need it if, you're, if 5 or 10% of the country is the only people who can make decisions? But all of a sudden, they're losing their minority control. So they unchain the corporation as a legal fiction very successfully in the mid to late 1800s. That process is in full, full course. And then they figure out how to hide behind the legal fiction, right? They hide behind the corporate veil. And then they start pumping all sorts of new rights into the corporation. And it ends up subordinating us. It ends up with more rights than we do, right? And that chart is a wonderful example of that. It's just, it's like picture puzzle pieces that keep being added to create a whole new political and social and legal norm, right? Where corporations start here, and they end up here, right, under law, almost entirely thanks to the Supreme Court. How do people win new rights in the United States? Constitutional amendment. How do corporations win new rights in the United States? Supreme Court, which is easier, right? Five people at least in the current court of nine, it's been different sizes throughout our history, five people give a corporation new rights. It's that simple. Happens all the time. Versus a, a, national, a federal constitutional amendment that requires super majorities of the House and Senate, two-thirds of each, to vote yes, followed by three-quarters of state legislatures to vote yes. That's 38 states. What happened in the 1970s, the, the women's movement that was very powerful and organized, locally, state, nationally, mobilized for an equal rights amendment to the US Constitution. How many people here were part of that? I'll bet you some people here were part of it, right on. Right? What happened? They successfully got supermajorities of the House and Senate. Then they mobilized for state votes. And in the 10 years that the government had given them that they were allowed to do this work within, they won 37 states. They needed 38. And the entire thing collapsed. They had nothing to show for themselves. Women are not persons yet in the United States, you could argue. 
because you didn't win the Equal Rights Amendment. Speaking of the Supreme Court, what do you think of the chances, uh, President, of uh, the Congress regulating the Supreme Court as per the Article Three of the Constitution? It's, they have the authority to do it. Have, it's in there, but then... There's, there's, a, no there's a very significant Supreme Court case in the early 1800s, Marbury versus Madison. Yeah. It's on the chart. The Supreme Court decides that it's supreme. That's the, the, the overly simplistic way to describe it. They decide that they have ultimate authority. And Congress at that point could have responded and said, uh-uh. They had the authority to say no, and they didn't. And it's never been challenged since. So again, all of these norms that we have, that we assume, come from very specific historical moments, almost all of them from an, ele- an unelected Supreme Court. Right? This is what's called judge-made law. Now, the judicial branch isn't supposed to make law. That's not their, their, their role. So you could call this illegitimate. It's constitutionally illegitimate because the judicial branch doesn't make law according to the Constitution. Congress makes law. So um, there's a bunch of hands, and what I want to do is take a quick break have you look at the timeline, check out the books. I want to, in this first section, I want to specifically draw you to a couple of different books that are for sale if you're interested. Defying Corporations is on the table. It's kind of like the Bible of this work, founded by Poclad. It's a 10 or 15 year old book. It doesn't really matter because it's a history book. That's the gold one, yeah. There are other books that I want to bring to your attention. Um, um, Building Unions is a, is a wonderful pamphlet from POCLAD, from this group. If you're interested in labor issues, this is a book of corporations overpowering the rights of people, corporate rights versus people's rights, specifically looking at labor history. It's this frame that I'm talking to you about, about labor history specifically. In the, af- in the second half, I'm going to talk about Be the Change, which is a small red book that's about it's the only book that's come out so far about the birth of and of the and the growth of the community rights movement. There's also a book on the table called The Rights of Nature, which is one, and another book called Wild Law. These are the two key books right now, and I'll, I haven't had a chance to talk too much about it. But in the second half, I'll tell you about giving, recognizing that nature has rights under law. There's a huge explosion of that happening, both in our own local ordinances and internationally. I'll tell you a bit about that after the break. And finally, there's, there's other books as well, but one more I'd like to bring your attention to is called Gaveling Down the Rabble, um, which is by, I think, our most entertaining author in our movement, Jane Ann Morris from, in Madison, Wisconsin, who wrote, I mean, a book that you would think is, is just sounds deadly dull, um, you would think a book about the history of corporate use of the Commerce Clause is not something you would be able to keep your eyes open for. This book is, believe it or not, entertaining and fill, and you will be laughing and crying simultaneously as you read it because like the oleomargarine story is, is brought to, you know, I mean, she spends pages and pages explaining what's culturally going on as community after state lose their authority to protect their own health and welfare and how the Commerce Clause is still being used for labor law, environmental law, et cetera, and how we need to figure out how to stop embedding laws that are about our protection 
in a constitutional amendment that's about business. Hey, the rabble, that's us, isn't it? That's us. So let's take 10 minutes or so, and let's come back at around 5 or 10 after 8. So, um, come on, Case. Come on up here. Is that Insta-Quartet? Insta-Quartet. Actually, Insta-Choir, you guys can also. Quintet with one semi-silent voice. That's all I'm going to bring our attention back. It's a phrase I learned from a book I was reading recently called Slow Money. Has anybody run into that? Anyway, the phrase is localization is bubbling up in the wake of globalization. So this is this whole globalization thing which has been propelled by the, well, what he's talking about. <laughs> that stuff. And, but it leaves awake, and then people come together and they start figuring out, and it's bubbling up. And so that's what's happening tonight. And so we'll, uh, we'll just sing it, and you can join in. And the, uh, the uh, basic line goes, Localization is bubbling up in the wake of localization. Localization is bubbling up in the wake of globalization. Localization is bubbling up in the wake of globalization. Then there's the second part. Oops. For the love of this sweet place and all who dwell herein. For the love of this sweet place and all who dwell herein. So you guys lead that part. Dwell herein. For the love of this sweet place and those who dwell herein. For the love of this sweet place and those who dwell herein. And those who dwell herein. Thank you so much for coming. This is great. Okay, so uh, I'm going to. just give you two very quick little nibbles of history that got left out in the time that I just used up. Very briefly, the largest democratic social movement in our history rose up in the late 1800s to try to stop the rise of corporate rule in the United States. The largest democratic mass movement in our history rose up to try to stop what I described. It's now called, it's now referred to as the populist era or the populist movement. 
the history of the populist era was written by the social movement that helped crush it, which <laughs> followed it, called the progressive era. Believe it or not, progressive is not such a great word if you understand what really happened in that era. And progressivism came out of that, right? Out of progressive era. The populist movement was the last significant social movement that refused to concede that corporations should have rights, refused to concede that corporations should be part of the political process. They mobilized a massive fight. If you go to, um, again, Wikipedia and look up, oh gosh, I forgot it again. What's the major town in Nebraska? Gosh. Omaha, thank you. If you go to Wikipedia and put in Omaha platform, up will come the National Founding Convention of the People's or Populist Party that met in the late 1800s on July 4th. It had all sorts of names up until then because this is pre-mass communication, pre-easy long-distance transportation. It rose up as genuine opposition locally to corporate grain mills in some places, corporate railroads in some places, corporate assembly lines in some places. The Grangers, early names for the movement, the Grangers, the Working Man's Party, the Knights of Labor, lots of other names. Every single county on the west coast of this country had a massive populist movement. You have history right here you can go to your county library. You can ask the reference librarian who hopefully still exists as a paid person in your local library <laughs> who knows that material intimately, knows what's there pretty intimately usually, and say, could you point me towards the populist era of the 1880s and 90s here? And you'll be stunned by what you find. It's exactly the kind of stuff we're talking about. It's a movement of people that refuse to concede that corporations should rule. Right? Imagine the credibility and gravitas of a new movement in this country today that can pull that history out from here. You're not quoting someone from Nebraska or New York. You're quoting people who were in Jefferson County in the 1880s and 90s. My guess is you had an active Grange in the 80s and 90s, yes? Granges take, keep phenomenally good records of their own history. There's another resource. Your county historical society, another great resource. Populist era, 1880s and 90s. What's the Nebraska town? Gosh, I can't. Omaha. I cannot remember that name. The Omaha platform. That's one little piece of the history. The progressive era that follows, starting in the 1900s, the first mass movement in American history that not only concedes that corporations should have rights, but welcomes enlightened corporate leaders into its leadership. Whole new culture shift, major culture shift going on. Right? Very, and again, this, I'm giving you just kind of a, a very overly simplistic overview. Wonderful book about the populist era is called The Populist Moment by Lawrence Goodwin in print. A good book about, excellent book about the progressive era is called Triumph of Conservatism. <clears throat> um, 
One of the key things that happens in the 1880s and 90s that's part of why the populists rise up is that we're moving very rapidly with the advent of the Industrial Revolution and mass assembly, mass production, from corporations being prohibited from causing harm, you remember that phrase, to the regulation of harm. We can't, we can't have economic progress, say the nation's leaders, corporate and elected, if, you, if harm is prohibited, we have to rethink industrial harm. We have to redefine harm. It's the birth of the regulatory era. Regulatory arena is founded in the 1880s by conversations, meetings between the, the executives of the railroad corporations, which are the first giant corporations, and, and the attorney general of the United States, late 1800s. They come to some very basic agreements. Here's a couple of quotes. There's an article that you can find online if you want to Google it. And I always forget what its title is. Hold on a sec. It's called Sheep in Wolf's Clothing. Not the other way around. The regulatory agencies were designed to look like wolves when in fact they were sheep. They were designed that way. How many people have had some interaction with a regulatory agency in this room? Environmental law, labor law, etc. If you've worked on those issues in conventional single-issue activism, you've probably had interactions with regulatory agencies and regulatory laws. The regulatory structure of law was designed, I'll read you a quote from that period, Interestingly enough, they weren't that secretive about their intentions. The conversations were minuted. Some of it was very public in speeches. Said Richard Olney, President Cleveland's Attorney General, explaining to railroad corporation executives, the first regulatory agency, the Interstate Commerce Commission, was to be, quote, a sort of barrier between the railroad corporations and the people, unquote. Charles Adams, later president of Union Pacific Railroad Company, saw what was needed to solve the railroad corporation's problems. What is desired, he wrote, is something having a good sound but quite harmless, which will impress the popular mind with the idea that a great deal is being done when in reality very little is intended to be done. So when we say in our liberal activist environmental groups... How do we figure out how to stop the industry's capture of the regulatory agencies? We say that because we don't know our history. The history is that that's what they do. That's what they were designed to do. They were designed to serve the corporations that they regulate and keep us funneled. And what, what else do they do? They funnel we the people's outrage and concern into single-issue activism. The ICC worked so well to regulate citizen outrage against the railroad companies that shortly thereafter, people have read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, outrage about the food industry. What does the federal government do? It creates a regulatory agency. And all of a sudden, that citizen outrage is funneled into a single-issue regulatory agency. That's, the, that's what regulations are. If you think about it, 
A regulatory agency never says no, almost never says no to an industrial proposal. Why? Because that's not what regulations are about. By definition, a regulation is an allowing, not a prohibiting, of an industrial activity. Right? It regulates. What it does is it legalizes a certain amount of harm. It redefines harm out of prohibition and into pseudo-scientific safe levels of harm, whether it be workers on an assembly line or toxins in the environment. The stuff coming out of the stacks of your local mill, right? there are regulations that have been scientifically determined as safe levels of poison. Right? Right? That's the system. That's the system we live in. So our work is not to strengthen the regulations within the community rights movement. We understand that we, the people, need to get out of the single-issue um, stranglehold that we're in, and we, start, we have to start operating again as the sovereign people who aren't willing to fight one corporate harm at a time. We want to take back our defining authority so that we start having power to say no to harmful corporate activities. And that's what's happening over the last year, the last 10 years. So I'm going to launch into that, and I'll go for just about 15 minutes or so to tell you this story very quickly, and then we'll have another conversation for hopefully the last 20 minutes. Um, <clears throat> about 13 years ago, Republican conservative hog farmers, family hog farmers in Wells Township, Pennsylvania, very, uh, a, very, a very conservative farm community, spent year after year trying to figure out how to stop a proposed factory farm of hogs from coming into their tiny village of 520 residents. 15,000 head hog farm factory was proposed. They figured, oh, well, we'll just tell them we don't want it. You can imagine what happened. They went to local officials, county officials, state officials, and what they found out stunned them. They went to civics class. They were patriotic. They thought that if everybody in the town didn't want it, it wouldn't happen. Well, what they found out is that all that there was out there in terms of their relations to to government to talk about their concerns was all filtered down into a regulatory agency whose only interest was regulating the amount of hog manure and urine and the sizes of the warehouses and how far the big Walmart parking lot sized pools of manure and urine were from the, clear, the closest creek, from the closest home, etc that all the regulatory agencies were empowered to talk about and to listen to feedback about had to do with the regulation of manure, the management of manure. That's not what the farmers wanted to talk about, right? They were filtered. Does, does this sound familiar from any of your activism? Into a conversation that wasn't about yes or no. It was about ameliorating harms around the edges. They refused. After three years, they said, this is not OK with us. They'd been working with a group called the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. I don't know if people can see what I put up here on the window. CELDF.org 
is the primary organization in, that's, that's doing this work in the country, Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. It's a public interest law firm that does environmental pro bono work in Pennsylvania and beyond. It's been around for 15 or 20 years. They only did environmental regulatory law. They helped these farmers year after year to delay the permit. But that's not a win. They held it off for three years. One day, the farmers, after three years of this, said to Seldoff's lawyers, could you write us an ordinance that says no? We don't want it. Write a, can you help us write a law? They said, sure, but it's illegal. You can pass it, but it's illegal. Well, what do you mean it's illegal? It violates corporate constitutional rights. It violates something called state preemption. State preemption is a law in every state of the country that says that the relationship between state government and local government is like parent to child. Mm. 